We just sang of the uh, heritage that is ours as believers, and of course, the uh, most important part of that heritage is God's word that he gives us to instruct us, to give us counsel, as that uh, hymn mentioned. And so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of uh, 1 John. We'll be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24 for our text this morning. It could be said that the theological high point of this pastoral message that John has, has given to us under the inspiration of the Spirit comes at the literary center of the letter. Uh, if you look at approximately the center of this letter, that's the text that we looked at last uh, Lord's Day, uh, verses 16 through 18. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John himself, you'll remember, witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, and by faith he understood that Jesus' life and death uh, was a revelation, we could say, a revealing by God uh, of a drama that, that is without parallel in human history. Uh, it, it, there, there's nothing that approaches the drama and the truth of the drama that is seen in what God did in Jesus Christ, and so he's calling our attention to that here at the center of this letter, and indeed throughout the letter, that Jesus has sacrificed himself. He, is, he, is, he has given himself to make atonement for the sins of his people, and he has freed them from sin so that they have a new identity in him. That's the thrust of what John's saying in those verses about about the love of Christ, the model of Jesus' love, becoming a model of ours. There is a sense in which the identity of the Christian is discovered in that revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And so we're given this new identity, this new character, we could say, as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and lives through us, replicating, we could say, play, acting out, uh, living through us with the same love that Jesus showed. Do you catch the, the significance of that? Okay, we, we live in a world in which people are struggling. They're, they're, they're grasping all over the place or some sense of identity and purpose. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you don't have that struggle. You've been given a new identity in Christ. And that's really what John is encouraging his readers, both his, his initial audience and us today. He's really encouraging us to, to recognize that, to recognize who we are in him. And what that means in terms of 
of living out our faith. And so that led him then that wonderful theological truth that he sets out there in chapter 3, verse 16, led him then to, to the, the incredible command in verse 18, when he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's one thing to have feelings of affection for people that are well, they're likable, okay? We like them, they like us, okay? It's natural to, to like likable people. It's another thing when their actions try your patience, when their thoughtless words provoke unkind words on your, from yourself. Now, in the real world, that, that love that Paul portrays in 1 Corinthians 13 that you're probably familiar with, that love, that love is not an easy thing. It doesn't come naturally to us. And, and so if, if, you've, if you've really grasped the truth that your identity is in Christ and that you're life should be a life of laying down your life for him and for others. If you've really heard that, if you've really seen what he did for you on the cross, then you have to find this command incredibly daunting, don't you? I mean, John is setting the bar so high here self-sacrificing love the kind of love that lays down its life and not just in one big big event you know it's not not like one crisis where you can step up to the plate and come through but a daily a daily laying down your life daily seeking to love as Christ is loved. Don't you find that challenging and daunting? You have to if you're really hearing what he's saying here. And, and so, how can you be assured that you're really following him? If the path of following him is to live like him, if he said, as he did, if you follow me, you have to take up your cross, then how do you know for sure you've done that? Especially when you look back on the past week and you can think of a lot of what times when you weren't that self-sacrificing. In fact, you were sort of self-glorifying, seeking your own. And what does God's word have to say to us in that circumstance? Well, that's a big part of this letter. John's going to give us some pastoral counsel here that's really great. Because he knows that we struggle with that issue of assurance from time to time. That, that we're plagued by these feelings of doubt. That, that is, as much as we want to love him and serve him, we find ourselves falling short in that. And we began to 
question question what we what our relationship with him really is and so he he anticipates that in our text today so with that in mind with an ear to hear the assurance that the holy spirit is going to give you through john listen to this text verses 19 through 24 in chapter 3 By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. You probably noticed our passions, passage begins with the verb knowing and ends with the verb knowing, right? It begins with, we shall know, and ends with, we know. And that reminds us of that, that theme that I just mentioned in the book of John, that, that John wants, wants the, the, the believers that, that receive this letter, he wants you to know an assurance in your relationship with God. We uh, noticed uh, much earlier in reading this letter that John's writing, evidently in the context of some false teachers having come into the fellowship that he's writing to. Some false teachers that have, that have spread wrong doctrine, uh, then many of them have abandoned the faith after that, and he knows that that, that, that is, has, has aggravated, in a sense, those, the, the assurance of these believers. Now, how can they be sure of, of what the teaching is that they're, they're receiving in church? And, and, and well, what, what, if, what if I might be one of those that, that abandons the faith like I've seen happen? And so, so he's addressing that, that in our text and elsewhere in the letter, but especially I want to look at that in, in our text. I think uh, in these brief verses, John provides you with three encouragements that, that I want you to hear. So I'm going to give those uh, to you right up front, and then we'll consider them in more detail. First, John tells us that we shall know that we are in the truth, of the truth. See that in verse, in verse 19. We shall know that we are of the truth when we remind ourselves that God is greater than our doubting hearts. Okay, so the first encouragement is God is greater than you. He's greater than your heart. He's greater than your way of thinking. Secondly, we have confidence before God, he says after that, when we pray in accordance with his will and for what pleases him. You can have confidence in your prayers, in your petitions to God. And thirdly, he says we know that he abides in us and us in him. There's that unity between us and Christ because the Spirit enables us to obey his will. Three strong encouragements 
that I want you to hear in this text. Let's think about them a little more detail as we go through it. Verse 19 opens then with this, this expression, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. See that in verse 19? Notice the tense, the future tense. Okay, I think that's significant. He uses the present tense at the end of the passage, but he's using the future tense here. here. We shall know that we are of the truth. Now, I think maybe he's using the future tense there because he knows in the present there are times when we're not real sure. There are times when we doubt. Okay, there are times when we waver in our understanding. That does not mean that somehow we've ceased to be Christians. Okay? When you doubt, when you're unsure, that is not to be taken by you as something terrifically unusual. God's people experience that kind of thing. I think he, he's assuming, by the way he's, he's, he's staging this here, he's assuming that there are going to be those times when we're not real sure that we're of the truth, that our hearts are wavering, that they need persuasion, that they need reassuring. So be encouraged by that, okay? Don't let Satan tempt you into living on a roller coaster in your Christian life where you think you're saved one day and then you're not sure the next day. There's an answer to those doubts. Okay, it's not that John wants you to continue in those doubts. I wouldn't want you to live in a situation of doubting. That is, that is not a happy situation. I, I wouldn't want your hearts to be unsure. But just because they are on one occasion or another, that does not mean that you're not the child of God. And I think that's why, why John expresses the truth here in the way that he does. We shall know. I think he's, he's giving us a, a, an attitude of expectation there. You may not be sure at the moment. You may be doubt, doubting at this moment, but we shall know. Okay. God's not going to leave you in that circumstance of doubt. In that circumstance of waver or of wavering. Maybe you sort of feel that way right now. Grab hold of this future tense in this verb. God's not going to leave you there. He's not going to leave you in that place of doubting. He doesn't want his children to be there. But notice what he does not offer as a resolution to that. Okay, before we look more carefully at what he does say, Notice what he does not say. He does not refer us to any kind of a ritual as a means of assurance. Okay? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't point you to anything that you do or did in the past as a means of having assurance right now. He, he doesn't say, well, if you did this, 
Okay, if, if you made a profession of faith publicly, if you were baptized, if you became a member of a church, if you did this or that or the other thing, he doesn't say that's going to be the ground of your assurance. It's not. It's not. Don't put your assurance in anything like that. He doesn't say, okay, follow this, this spiritual routine, and you'll get your stride back. He doesn't point you to anything that you can do. In fact, he says, take your eyes off yourself, doesn't he? Stop looking at yourself. If you're doubting, you're probably looking at yourself. If your heart is wavering, if, if your thoughts are confused, you're probably thinking inwardly. You're thinking about yourself. He says, look to God. There it is, right there. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure, persuade our hearts before God. Before God, you can persuade your thoughts, you can persuade your heart, because whenever your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. You're, the ground of your assurance, it must be in God. Okay, you got that? The ground of your assurance, the basis for persuading your heart that you're on solid ground, has to be in the Lord. Anything that you're thinking or doing is not going to be solid ground. I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't care about what you think. You shouldn't care about what you do. That's not what I'm saying at all. But you don't want to put the cart before the horse. Okay? Your confidence is to be in God. And then in confidence in Him, you can act. I think that's the reason for the order that he's taking these things. He wants you, first of all, to have your assurance grounded in God, in Christ, and in Christ alone. I think that's part of the reason why he uses the expression here, of the truth. We are of the truth. Okay, that, that word truth, doesn't that bring to your mind his, his use of that word earlier in the letter? He, he's... he's, he's put a big emphasis on the concept of truth in this letter. He repeats the phrase over and over again. We've seen it a number of times. Look at, back at 1 John uh, chapter 1 in that ver the very opening paragraph. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We do not do what is truthful, literally he says. He says a moment later, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Those who are of the truth practice the truth, do the truth. That's what he's saying, right? To practice the truth is to walk in the light, to use the, the metaphor that he uses there in, first, in the first chapter. To live in communion with God, which means in oneness with him. You're of one mind, you're thinking the way God thinks. Now notice in the next breath the apostle says we're not of the truth if we say we never sin. Okay, he's not calling us to sinless perfection here. So, so, so the mere fact that you have sinned 
does not say you're not a child of his. Okay? Now, it's true. John's affirming. If you're of the truth, you're going to practice the truth. If you're of the truth, you're going to live truthfully. But just because you fail to live up to that on one occasion or another, well, that's, that's actually to be expected. Now, he's not excusing sin here. Scripture never excuses the sin of a Christian. We're always to repent. But, but don't you see that, that he's saying, if we say we never sin, how are we going to repent? If I'm denying that I ever sin, and I'm not going to be walking in the truth because I'm not going to be aware of my sin, I'm not going to confess that sin and, and be restored in relationship with him. And so he, ex he explains this further in the, in the next chapter, in chapter 2 of 1 John. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the, truly the love of God is perfected. So now he's, he's defining a little more closely for us here. To know or to practice the truth is to live according to God's commands, to keep his word. For in this way, the love of God, he says, is perfected. There's an inseparable link, you notice, between living truly and loving God. The life of truth is fueled, we might say, by love for God. God has poured his love into our hearts. God has demonstrated his love for us. And our response to that is to love him and want to please him. The initiative is his, but the response is ours. He says later in, in chapter 2, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. And how does he further define that? Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, resides in you, then you too will reside in the Son and in the Father. Those who have, professed faith, who have confessed faith in Christ, as I said earlier, have a new identity in him. And Christ lives in them through the Spirit. And so in the verses immediately preceding our text that we looked at earlier, John has exhorted us to define love in terms of what Jesus did, his example of love for us, laying down his life for us. And then he's commanded us not to love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So to be of the truth then is to know the truth of God's revelation of himself in Christ, to look at Christ and his work of salvation and see that as the definition of truth and to live in him and through him by self-sacrificing love like his. There's no true knowledge of truth outside of knowing and confessing Christ. There's no confessing of Christ that is not expressed in love, laying down our lives for others. Now, now all that then is in John's mind when he uses that expression of the truth. And he's saying you can know, you shall know that you're of the truth 
because of what God has done. God is greater than your doubting heart. He's greater than the misgivings of your mind. Jesus himself assures us of that, doesn't he? Think, for instance, of John chapter 6. This is after his uh, identification of himself as the bread of life. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you have come to Christ, it is because you have been given by the Father to him as his. Isn't that a wonderful image? The Father is giving to the Son a people whom the Son redeems for himself. If you're drawn to me, Jesus says, there's no way I'm ever going to cast you out because you're the Father's gift to me. Isn't that a beautiful imagery? That's greater than your doubt, isn't it? This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. There's no room there for for loss, right? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Not, well, He might have eternal life if He lives up to it. You have it right then. Eternal life is something the believer possesses now. Or listen to the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul is saying, put your confidence in what God has purposed to do in Christ for his people. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice how he uses the past tense all the way through that. 
I, I don't think he forgot that he needed to change the tents. He, he purposely say, says glorified past tense at the end, not will be glorified. Now we know chronologically, yes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be future to us. We're not glorified right now. But Paul is using the past tense to communicate the idea it's a done deal. It is so certain. Your glorification in Christ is so certain, I can use the past tense in speaking of it. Because there's absolutely no doubt. No doubt that he's going to glorify all those whom he calls to himself. To know you're of the truth is... is John wants you to, in our text, to persuade your mind and heart of that reality. That, that verb, by the way, is used of convincing, of using an argument to persuade somebody. Sometimes you need to argue with yourself on the basis of God's truth. So to know you are of the truth, to persuade your mind and heart of that reality, look not to yourself. Not what you feel, not what you think, not what you do, but to look to God, what he has willed and what he he has done in Christ. There's where your confidence is going to be found. God is greater than your heart. Genuine assurance that you have been adopted as his child is not found in constantly analyzing yourself, but in constantly meditating on him. It's the love of God in Christ for you that is your ultimate trust and hope. Not your love for him. Your love will waver. His will not. So the first ground for your assurance is to look to God. To see your salvation as resting entirely upon him. But John, of course, goes on from there, right? He, he adds a lot more, and we'll just briefly consider what he adds in, in verses 20 through uh, 23. Or 21 and through 23, I mean. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Here's the second encouragement that I think He gives to us here, and it's that God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. When we're doubting, we need to be reminded that God hears our prayers. And, and, and what's the guarantee for that? Where well, he gives that to us. I, I can know that God is going to hear any prayer that I make that is in harmony with his will and his good pleasure. You see that? He's given you the grounds for confidence in your praying. Because if you're praying, seeking to do what pleases him, seeking his commands, he hears those prayers, and if he hears them, he answers them. Now again, that doesn't mean that whatever we're hoping for or wishing for at the moment is going to happen. But if my will is being lined up with his will in prayer, I can know he's going to bring that about. J. 
Jesus communicates this idea to his disciples on his last night with them before his crucifixion by using the imagery of a vine and branches. You remember that? In John chapter 14 and 15. He says, for instance, in, in John 15, the first, verse, first paragraph, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he, that he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He says a moment later, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, your joy may be that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Do you catch that connection? Okay, in prayer, we're lining up our will with the Father. We're abiding in Christ. And... And so he brings fruit out of us through our prayers as well as through our actions that then brings glory to him. The ultimate, the ultimate uh, consequence of that is joy. Right? It's the joy of seeing God bring about his will even through you. As limited as you may feel you are at some times. And that leads us to the, the end of our text, I think. Verse 24. Whoever keeps his commands abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Jesus says later in chapter 15 of John. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. How does this happen? What John concludes our text by going back to that verb, know. By this we know, present tense, that he abides with us. And where does he point us? He points us right back to God again, doesn't he? He began pointing us to God. In this third encouragement, he points us to God as well. It's God, the Spirit. Look at the references that, that Jesus himself made in, in, in John chapter 14. That the Spirit I am giving you, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. He dwells with you and will be, with, and will be in you. Where do we get the wisdom and the strength to live in a way that pleases and honors God? Well, we get it from God himself. So once again, John's saying, don't put your confidence in yourself. To live the Christian life, you're not to think of it as somehow exerting more willpower, more human effort on yourself, by yourself. Instead, it's in being dependent upon the Spirit who dwells in you. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit that drew you to Christ in the first place. 
It's the Holy Spirit that caused you to love Jesus in the first place. You would have no love for Christ. You would have no seeking after God if the Spirit hadn't put that in you. So trust in the Spirit's work in you. Trust that the Spirit is going to enable you to interpret his word and to be obedient to it. Go to the word often because that's how the Spirit's speaking to you. That's the raw material that he's using to produce fruit in you. Is his word as his Holy Spirit interprets it to you. And so John ends, ends the way he began. Put your confidence in God. When you're doubting, when your mind is wavering, put your confidence in God. Put it, put your confidence in, in, in the one who is greater than you, the one who first called you to himself, the one who awakened in you love for Christ and a desire to love and serve him. And he will not fail. He will not fail to work in you and through you for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we desire you to do this work of assurance in, in our hearts and lives. Because we know that that will bring glory to you. Uh, it, it is not your will for your people to continue in wavering and in doubt and discouragement. You want us to look to you, to see in your great love for us in Jesus Christ, every reason to be encouraged, to be confident of your love for us, to, to see in your word the, the pathway to knowing your will, to praying for it and to doing it and to recognize in your gift of the Spirit who first drew us to you, the power to live in obedience to you. Help us to encourage one another in these things, Lord, and, and to persuade one another, as it were, to convince one another as we together seek to be your obedient people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.